Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv. We also have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Snowflakes Are Real and I Never Knew This. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. I grew up here, AJ. They've been here for a long time. I've never um, seen, I've looked here for a decade. I've never seen a snowflake before. I didn't know they were real. I, I thought they were microscopic, but they're real. Uh-huh. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Taz Singh. Taz, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and why you're famous. <laughs> well, I certainly hope. I'll certainly be famous after this one. Um, I'm Taz. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm South African, Canadian, now British, now living in now living in London, UK. So I grew up oh, without cool. any snow, uh, went to a whole lot of snow, and then went back to very little snow. So um, I can certainly relate that snowflakes are real. <laughs> so I guess uh, nice. I, 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 last time I saw Dan, good good to see you again, first of all, was back in, back in Australia. We were both down there for uh, Web Directions uh, Conference. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Australia, not very much snow either. Yeah. Oh, actually, when we were in Tasmania uh, during our tour around the country, there were it was actually snowing a bit at one of the, one of the places that we were at, even though it was supposed to be summer. There you oh, go. Well. But yeah, we were both down there, uh, Web Directions Conference Sydney. I was speaking about um, kind of our exploration using React Native, React Native Web, React Native on every platform, and kind of uh, how we're building that for what I'm working on now at Guild. So um, yeah, happy to dive into that. Um, Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, To be honest, I think it might be interesting to kind of get into Guild and what it is and what problems you're trying to solve. And then that way we can understand what you're doing with React Native and React Native Web, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I guess to tell a bit more about that, I need to kind of rewind a little bit and tell you a bit more about uh, myself time. and my passion. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, as I mentioned, I'm from I'm South African, Canadian, British. I mean, I've, I'm kind of three continents in one. <laughs> and so I've um, been traveling around um, for quite a while. And kind of the thing that's grounded me has always been community and kind of people and, mm-hmm. you know, elevating each other through people and all of that. And so um, after I dropped out of university, the thing that brought me back was the technical community, um, you know, and I attribute a lot of my current um, uh, success to that. And so 2010, Toronto, uh, back in the days when, you know, Backbone was just becoming a thing, jQuery was still relevant. Um, sorry, Dan. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, you know, we're all making more and more, we're all adding more JavaScript to the web platform. Again, sorry, Dan. Um, uh, back in those days, you know, JavaScript was getting complex, right? And I was often um, kind of looked at as, oh, you're a JavaScript developer. You aren't a real developer. You know, real developers program in C Sharp and .NET and Java and all these types of things. Um, <laughs> I feel this so much. You're a developer, you know? Yeah, like I'm sure, I'm sure. Have, have you gone through similar things, Charles? Yeah, yeah, with that or with Ruby. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute, Ruby, is Ruby supposed to be a real programming language? Um, I forget. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's Rails doesn't scale. Anyway, <laughs> like the best, the best part about the best part about Ruby is you can make it into whatever programming language you want. That is true. Uh, it's true. That's yeah, the same. It's, I, I think I think that that approach was innovated by Lisp, which can literally be any programming language you want, as long as you like parentheses. Yeah, well, that's uh, and that's what Lisp stands for, right? Lisp stands for lost and stupid parentheses. Yes, exactly. 
Um, so, so that's that's kind of the the ecosystem that you know I was I was often getting told back in 2010 as a Ruby and JavaScript developer. That's what I did back then. And mm-hmm. so I said, you know what? Like, uh, like essentially, we know how to make applications using JavaScript. We've made very complicated things. In fact, in my opinion, the front end really matters because if you have a bad front end. Nobody's going to use your back end anyway. So even if you had the right. best back end in the world, if you have a terrible front end, it, it doesn't matter, you know. And so front end engineering really matters. Let's get everyone that's doing cool front end stuff in Toronto together. Let's get us talking and let's discover and learn together amongst what we're doing. And so I started the Toronto Jobsville community way back then. Yeah, and long story short, uh, over the years, you know, uh, tech talks, workshops, code clubs, um, hack days, um, you know, you name it, <laughs> from 2010 all the way up, um, just growing that community, learned the hard way of what it takes to run a community, all of the moderation concerns, funding concerns, finding venues, finding content. Um, you know, it's tough. I'm sure. I'm sure for for your podcast. Um, I don't think there's any shortage these days, but <laughs> maybe in the early days, getting it off the ground and getting it going. Um, you know, it's always tough to to get something started, right? So, by community, mm-hmm. you're talking of like what meetups, events, conferences, get-togethers. What 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 does running a community in this context actually mean? Yeah, I think all of the above. So, um, so primarily, primarily a meetup group and kind of community events uh, where folks would get together. Um, yeah, I mean, socials where they just literally get together and hang out and kind of talk to each other, just, you know, obviously very socially. Um, tech talk nights where there'd be someone on stage presenting about a talk or a concept they had. Uh, workshops of someone in front of, I don't know, 30 to 50 developers, um, um, walking them through step by step what it takes to build something. And then code club nights where um, you, you could just kind of show up informally, have a general idea you want to hack on and then kind of drum up interest from other people there to hack on it. So Toronto.js had those four types of events on rotation. Um, so you can imagine <laughs> all the organizational overhead and challenges of running s- such a type of organization. But thankfully, again, because we're community first, community run, um, it's just drumming, drumming up interest from the community. And I'm you know, fortunate Toronto's a big city, so it was, wasn't so bad doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Through that as well, I or- also organized conferences. Uh, I think, I, think we, I organized the largest JavaScript conference in the world at its time, <laughs> which was back in 2014, <laughs> a 700 oh, developer wow. conference, um, which was the largest at its time. Yeah. Um, uh, jQuery Toronto, um, back when jQuery was still relevant in 2014, of course. <laughs> it's jQuery will never die. jQuery will always be relevant. Well, you, you know what's funny? We, we actually <laughs> didn't have a single jQuery talk. Like although, all the talks were Ember, moved, Angular, everything else. Go ahead. I've moved from jQuery to a jQuery. A jQuery. Yeah, AJ know what I'm, knows what I'm talking about. It's we a can real talk thing. I'll it. put a link in. I love it. Yeah, it's 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 jQuery in two lines of JavaScript. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you know Tom, like Tomasz Lakomi from from Poland from Poznan. Um, very good friend of mine. We 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 used to do a touring JavaScript comedy for with a group called Smoosh. Um, so started in London, we toured in Berlin, Helsinki, Finland, as well. Um, but our show in Berlin, uh, it had a Tomasz Lakomi there, and he gave he gave a. a he, he gave a, a comedic talk on how he's DJ query. Um, and <laughs> through that whole process, we've come to learn that there's apparently a, a, a radio presenter in Chicago called DJ query. Ah, uh, the guy sued you or something. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and, and now they're going to sue this podcast too. I'm so sorry, Dan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's Chuck's problem, not mine. Right. So, so yeah, so you're, you're kind of putting together guild for these groups of people that want to get together and, you know, do. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I guess jump, jumping uh, uh, to that, skipping ahead to that. Basically, yeah. Uh, the incentive with guild is to build a platform to help people um, run communities. So um, all those troubles I had finding content, fundraising, you know, um, stitching together a platform, finding sponsors, et cetera, et cetera, selling tickets. Um, Guild does it out of the box. Um, we find sponsors on behalf of these communities um, and we take a commission off that. So we're, we're, we're aligned with the success of the community as opposed to other platforms which, you know, charge the community to run, therefore um, kind of sapping away from, from their sponsors uh-huh. and, and creating more funding pressures. So that's kind of the goal of Guild is to help incentivize um, community growth and community scale and kind of be there as your partner as you scale upwards and onwards. When did when did you start Guild? Uh, so it's been kind of in the back of my mind since I think 2010 when I started Toronto JavaScript. <laughs> you know, like back, you know, like like essentially we're all software developers. We're all, you know, have that kind of idea in the back of the mind that, hey, I, I like essentially I can build a better thing, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is you're using. And so it's been at the back of my mind, I could build a better community platform since then. But it wasn't until COVID hit that I was glued in front of, you know, Twitch and YouTube all day that it dawned on me that, hey, this business model applied to communities is an actually better platform. I mean, you can go technically build something better, but is anyone going to use it? You know, like, I think that's debatable. Um, It it wasn't until I got those two concepts together, business model and a technical platform together as one that actually produced something that's actually 10x better. So I would say um, more actionably on Guild for the past uh, two years or so. Very cool. cool. How many people do you have working in Guild these days? Oh, we need more. <laughs> so we're currently <laughs> currently fundraising to, uh, to hire a few more. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, got some real heavy hitters. So um, uh, the former uh, CEO I used to work with 11 years ago, we sold a company, Ticketmaster Live Nation. Um, uh, so I've been working with him for about 11 years. He's on board. Um, the d- design lead at Pitch.com, Fabrizio Rosa Marquez, um, in- insane in- interactive designer. He's on board. I have a few developers I've been scaling with for the past seven years. They're on board. But uh, I like to describe it that we can all see into each other's blind spots. So, you know, I have my own blind spots. You know, other members of the team have their own blind spots. We have someone that can see into each other's blind spots. So we have pretty good coverage and really good synergy. But yeah, <laughs> we'd always use so, more. So Guild is already at the at the place or point where you're actually offering a service. There's, there's a website where I can go and actually start using Guild. Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to uh, guild guild dot host g u i l d dot host, um, you can you can click on a link and view our beta on there. Um, we just launched that beta about eleven months ago now, so um, uh, being used by communities around the world, which is which is fantastic, validating product direction. And so uh, this year, what we really want to focus on is kind of the next stage of that. So um, conferences, um, kind of larger communities, um, and really building out kind of as, as I mentioned before that sponsorship marketplace and network, and really really helping communities essentially at the next level. I, I kind of want to see how React Native plays into this, right? Because you know, it, it's one thing to have sort of the um, data CRUD operational application, right? It's another thing where you've got uh, interactive stuff. You want people to get on your website. At the same time, you also want people on your mobile app. And so it seems like you're going to have like this interesting juxtaposition of problems to solve. That Yeah. yeah. 
You're absolutely correct. And um, it's it, it's tough knowing what to pick because, um, yeah, and I think React Native in particular, it, it's, 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 it's a tough sell for so many reasons. It, it's a great sell for lots of reasons, but a tough sell for other reasons. And so obviously it's, it's, a, it's a great sell. It's a no-brainer for lots of folks building mobile apps, you know, like build once. Um, and right. deploy to iOS, deploy to Android. I think that 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 makes a ton of sense. But often when I say I'm I'm deploying React Native to the web, people just look at me a bit odd and say, "What?" <laughs> you know, like I think it was yeah. the other way around. Like not not the way you're doing it. Like like what what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, Is it like React Native for the web? Just React? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they're. they're it's this odd look that they give me and this kind of exactly what Dan said. Like, aren't you just writing React? Like, why are you making things more complicated? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that's been a much harder sell. So for me, I, I've been writing React Native for web and for and for uh, uh, mobile for about uh, six years now. Um, so I started back in 2017. And I mean, if I'm honest with you, back then I was equally skeptical. <laughs> if you told me, hey, Taz, we're writing React Native for web, I'm like, why not just write React? Um, it works fine. It works well. Um, but I, I worked with a team that really convinced me that React Native could work on web. Um, and I think the main part that I understood at that point was what React Native basically is. It's a component system and a method of defining those components. That's really all it is. If you're working mm -hmm. with a design system, you could arguably just make, the, make those equivalent with React Native components and bam, you're basically writing a React Native application. Um, it doesn't like the platform itself, the host itself doesn't really matter as much because you're writing at, 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 within this component system and what's hosting it is kind of up to the platform. It's not what you're actually writing itself. So um, in building a fully functional application using React Native Web and React Native for mobile, I was sold. I was like, okay, this actually works. I can right. see this actually functioning. Um, I can see the value of this. And around the same time, Twitter actually rewrote their entire front end using React Native Web. So if you use Twitter for web right now, you're using React Native Web already. Um, and, and a ton of other companies as well are actually using React Native Web today that you probably wouldn't even know is, is React Native. That's interesting because Twitter is one of the only websites that works on mobile. Twitter Twitter experience on mobile is, I think, bar none, the best experience that I've ever, 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 ever seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's 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 interesting because they launched their web experience with mobile.twitter.com first. So they launched it mobile web, which is React Native web, and they found that that experience... Um, I think the like the like the performance benchmarks of that, like the usability, um, you know, benchmarks, like all the different analytics they had, proved that that was a superior experience to, to Twitter.com. So they made mobile.twitter.com the main experience, and so and so that's actually what you're using when you use Twitter.com today. But going back a second to to what you just said, because that kind of surprised me or maybe threw me off a little bit. So are you effectively saying? that React Native for web is just React with a collection of certain components. That's it. Because it was kind of my understanding that React Native has this whole runtime concept of, you know, separation between the logic thread and the rendering thread and stuff like that. And you know, I was kind of curious how that would work on the web where you mostly just have one thread. And you're saying all this thing doesn't really exist or does it? Or like, like, what's the story here? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And so, um, like, th- there's 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 Sebastian Mark Boga, um, the main architect of well, one of the main architects of, of the React uh, platform, and uh, he he gave a talk a while back. I'm I'm gonna misremember the talk, but it was essentially um, you can think of React as layers, right? And so um, the more layers you add to it, obviously the more abstraction you have, and you, at some point you're dealing with this higher level thing that it doesn't really matter what's below that within the stack because you're only interfacing with this higher level thing. I know it's obviously a generalized concept. It's, it's a generalized concept of abstraction that I just described. And he goes on in his talk to describe it much more eloquently than I just did. So I'd recommend checking it out, um, his talk. But it, essentially, essentially, it's that. It, it's, it's, it's you as a developer, which part are you interfacing with? Um, me as a developer, I'm interfacing with a component library. If I'm building an interface in React, I'm writing a bunch of components. You know, Maybe I'm writing a bunch of hooks these days. But that, that's the level that I'm interacting at. What's from that level lower doesn't really matter to me. So you're absolutely correct, um, uh, Dan, that like the, the React Native runtime on mobile, there's a, there's, a, there's a logic thread, there's a rendering thread, there's you know, all these different uh, pieces working together. Um, on, on a web browser, I mean, of course, you're writing to DOM and, and you're writing to CSS and that's being parsed by, by, by a browser. But, but, but that's not what I'm working with. What I'm working with is that, is that component system. And if I can author a, um, a, an application using that component system, arguably, I can get that to run on any platform because any platform can take those same level components and, and abstract away the actual runtime. And what about styling? You kind of touched on that uh, in your explanation. I mean, obviously, when you're building for actual mobile, then you don't have CSS. But when you're building for the web, then you do. So when you're using React Native for web, are you or are you not using CSS to style things? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's kind of a funny one because on React Native for mobile, you're right, there's no CSS. However, React Native provides styling constructs that resemble mm-hmm. CSS and, and, and actually has a Flexbox implementation. So um, when you're writing React Native at, at its very core, you, you style with property names that basically look the same as CSS and, and, and mm-hmm. everything is Flexbox. And so if you have those two primitives, you can arguably build a full UI. And since you have those primitives and it works so closely with, with essentially with the web platform, it, it's, it, it, it maps very nicely as well. The main thing you don't have is the cascade. So you have style sheets, you just don't have cascading style sheets. Um, so um, all, all the different styles are scoped to the component and, and, and you don't have that type of cascade that you would normally have on, on a web platform. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that, of course. But yeah. um, as long as you're cognizant of that, you can, you know, build an application around it. Ironically, uh, most uh, uh, users of what, JavaScript frameworks try to get away from cascading as much as they can. You know, we had, uh, we had uh, Tracy Lee and uh, Adam Bradley I think his name is, mm-hmm. on our show to talk about Svelte. And they emphasize how Svelte, you know, does kind of magic in order to scope CSS to its components rather than have them cascade across the in- entire page. So, so yeah, it's, it's amusing. So you're basically saying if, if you're using React Native for the web, effectively, that's, that is what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's essentially a, a set of components, um, like like React Native set of components, and and um, that's standardized across every platform. 
And uh, because um, the React Native styling system is essentially web-based CSS property names on top of Flexbox impl impl implementation, all of that continues to work in the web platform. Therefore, it just works. Um, it works on, on every platform. It works on mobile, works on web, it can work on desktop as well, TVs, and so on and so forth. So as long as the platform can understand um, th those items, um, it, can, it can effectively render to any platform. Yeah, it all goes back to that, some of that idea of the layers, right? Because the the styling and the components, um, I used to host the React Native podcast on on this network and, uh, you know, talk to all kinds of people about this stuff. But what's, what's interesting is, yes, you have React DOM, which is what you're used to with your React uh, development on the web. And then you have React Native, which is the rendering engine for the mobile. And yeah, like you said, the components kind of sit neatly on top of it. And the uh, the styling approach to React Native also sits neatly in there. I don't know exactly how it fits in, but anyway. So once it once it uh, does its thing with your layout, it knows how to convert those base components. You know, React Native knows how to turn it into React UI components, and React DOM knows how to turn it into web com web not web components, but, you know, components on a web page. And so at the end of the day, what you wind up with is you wind up being able to write the same code and then the engines just handle it properly so that it gives you the right thing depending on what platform you're on. And it's really slick. Um, I never really did quite get React um, working, but it's been a year or so since I uh, have really done much with it. So I'm, I'm, I was like, this is going to be fun because may, maybe you're making it work now, so. Yeah, and, and admittedly, um, uh, like like since since I started working on this six years ago, I had to do so much manually back then, like configure all the Webpack manually, mm -hmm. the file file names manual, figure out the overrides, yada yada yada. I mean, back then it was a pain. Um, these days, it's so much better. I mean, these days you can basically go to Expo um, Expo's website, download what oh, they yeah. have. Oh yeah, awesome. Across platform. It's so good. Yeah, it, it's it's incredible what they're doing. And um, so in the talk I gave actually in Do Australia. Um, Oh, sorry, Do you want to explain real quick what Expo is for folks? Yeah, for sure. Um, so essentially, they're a so <laughs> it's funny. It depends who you talk to. Like, there's a good friend of mine that works a lot <laughs> with React Native that um, that I think has described it uh, the best and maybe controversially, which is why 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 I'll repeat it here. Um, so uh, Facebook Meta they basically released. React Native and said, hey, here's a thing that we have internally today. Like, here's exactly mm -hmm. what we have. You know what I mean? This is what it is. Essentially, what Expo has done is taken that, which has been very much directed at Meta's internal usage and made it usable for the rest of us. Um, they've um, kind of bolted on the additional build tooling. They've made it um, approachable. Um, they've kind of packaged it up in a really nice way that we can all use. Um, so that that's, that's, that's the way that I think of it at a very high level. Um, and kind of a, a tier below that, um, they you know they have a they have a a service that'll do all the builds for you. Um, they're a kind of managed solution that'll make it easy to write applications across um, iOS, Android, mm -hmm. web. Um, they have great documentation. Um, you know they have like a notification service, a way to install any sort of native module, depend you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they kind of they kind of taken that you know, kind of kind of raw um, piece of rock, <laughs> if you will, that Meta's given us. And they've kind of chiseled away all the rough edges, smoothened it off and kind of, you know, presented in a way that we can we can all kind of just take and, and you know, use as, as we want to. So I have two yeah. questions. I'm kind of thinking which one to start with. Um, okay, so my first question is this. Um, 
you were talking about the set of components and about the fact that you can obviously use React Native to write, to develop applications for you know, iOS, for Android, and now also for the web. When you're developing for these three platforms, will you be using the exact same components and will you end up with exactly the same UI? Uh, it kind of seemed to me that kind of the point is that you maybe you do, but then maybe you don't. So what is it? Yeah, uh, fantastic <laughs> question. So I, I think um, like six years ago, I had the same thought because <laughs> I've never used a good cross-platform framework that that actually respected each platform. Um, you know, they kind of glossed over the differences and you'd, you'd build in this kind of higher level thing that didn't work well anywhere, <laughs> you know. Um, and so th that Java. was the thing that impressed me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or it would work on the one they initially Native. designed it for and then not anywhere else. And just be janky and weird and like, yeah, yeah. like I was using an app the other day that was a repackaged web app for desktop. And like whenever I, I dragged over a piece of text, it would select the text. It wouldn't like click the text, you know, like small things like that. Mm -hmm. When you try to repackage a, a, an application meant for one platform onto others. Um, React Native was the first cross-platform uh, tool that I've used that actually respected every platform. So um, es essentially, to go, to go back to your, to your question, Dan, like the way that I would think about it is, is which parts of the UI are common, which parts of the UI are shared, and then write those in a common shared manner. And then which parts of the plat which parts of the experience are different and actually respect each platform. And what React Native allows you to do quite well is drop down to that platform and write those in, in a platform specific unique way, um, just through file extensions. So you might have like a um, uh, like 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 some sort of user component.ts file, and that'll be the same for everyone. You can write user component.ios.ts, and that'll be unique for iOS, user component.web.ts, that'll be unique for web, and so on and so forth. That's a you know very basic example, but um, as it makes sense to differentiate, you can differentiate. As it may, makes sense to consolidate, you can consolidate. And um, I think that's the one thing I really like about React Native is that it allows you to actually respect each platform's differences and 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 build for it in like a nice way, um, as opposed to uh, what I've seen done elsewhere, where it, it's often very much of like an afterthought <laughs> or not even thought about in, in, in essentially in a lot of cases. Yeah, one other so, thing uh, that I would add is that if you want to pull in libraries or things from the different ecosystems, it does that fairly seamlessly too. I think the one that I've seen most often grabbed is uh, CocoaPods. And you can pull CocoaPods in and there are a lot of adapters that are written so that when it talks over the JavaScript bridge to native iOS, um, it can call into those libraries and do what it needs to do. And, you know, a lot of that is pretty clean. The developers who have written them have made it pretty easy to use that stuff and so it's you can find what you need without having to go to a ton of trouble to figure it out so i get the benefit then that you basically you're saying if if i'm understanding correctly that if i want to target two or all three platforms then using react native makes a whole lot of sense because based on what you're describing i can mostly write once uh, and then run everywhere. Um, my question is, if I don't in need to, you know, write native code, or if I don't need a native app, do I still want to consider React uh, Native for Web, or should I just go with React? 
Yeah. And so uh, for us at Guild, I mean, like, like that's something that we know we want to build. So right now we're building React Native only for web. So we're only shipping to one platform. Uh, we're, at, we're at a very early stage of our company and we want to iterate fast. Um, we don't want to go through App Store and release cycles and all those complications that you get from, from mobile. Um, so we are actually building an app for a single platform that is web. However, we're still using React Native. Um, the main things that have kind of been developed over the years that have um, made me go with this approach has been, I, I think, the rise of design systems. So, like, like if, if you're building an app these days, you know, it, it's recommended that you use a design system. Maybe at a very early stage you don't, but, um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do you a, a few favors to use a design system. I mean, these days, I mean, Tailwind has gotten a lot of... Um, uh, uh, wind in its sails, and um, uh, you know, there's actually native wind as well for React Native, so that you could you could argue that is kind of a system of design. Um, yeah, we have, I was we have curious own... about that. If well, should I or should I not consider Tailwind to be a design system? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's another that's another rabbit hole that we can go. Yeah, down. that's that's <laughs> another whole podcast. <laughs> I like Tailwind though. Yeah, I think well, wait, Tailwind's I really cool. I thought design system had to do with literally the design, and Tailwind is, I mean, I think this is an important question if we're talking about a design system. Tailwind is just a specification for how to basically a naming convention for CSS classes. It's not a system of design in terms of components. Yeah, like like you can compose Tailwind into a com- a set of components, for example, um, but mm-hmm. Tailwind in isolation is is not that. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah, right, yeah. Um, but I, I guess for, like for 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 the type of example that that, that I'm illustrating, um, it, it is like like Tailwind or a set of components abstract away over the underlying platform enough that you can kind of build off of that. And so, um, uh, for example, Tailwind, obviously for web, it's Tailwind. For React Native, it's Native Wind. And that provides uh, styling consistency across both. Um, so you can effectively just write using either and 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 it works on whatever platform similarly I- exactly like a set of components that are from a design system um you're writing in that set of components you know and if that set of components works anywhere it doesn't really matter what's underneath it you're just writing in the set of components so in, in that sense um uh, like like that's how i think about it is is what am i what am i actually writing and if that thing can work anywhere then really what's underneath it doesn't doesn't really matter so what what we've done is we've we've used a react native design system um and just built that for web and so in the future, whenever we want to launch an iOS or, or Android app, we just have to build it for iOS or Android, and we're, we're basically done. I mean, of course, um, you know, we might need to write that 5 or 10% code that's unique to that platform, but it's much easier writing 5 or 10% code than writing 100% code. Um, so uh, that's kind of the way that, that we're approaching it. Can you give examples of some of the components that you got out of the box from React Native and some of the components that you had to build yourself on top of them? Yeah, and, and I'm gonna be that I'm gonna be that guy that said I rewrote our app three times, <laughs> and, so, and so it's and you still uh, haven't gotten not, it not right. A great example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we, I think we have that, rewrite that's how it always feels. Yeah. Up as well. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so like, I mean, like, like the basics are like things like view, things like select, things like scroll view, you know, so like a view can be like a div, for example, you can think of it in the same way. Um, a select is just a select box. 
um, you know, a scroll view is just a view that can scroll. You know, those types of basic UI primitives. Um, React Native has just has them defined in literally those component names. And you can, you know, very easily think of how that maps to a web platform or, or to any other platform. You know, it's just it's just a box. It's just a just a select drop down. It's just a, you know, something you can scroll. Um, yeah. Those incidentally, so uh when I was hosting the React Native show, I also hosted the iOS show for a long time, uh, speaking, you know, uh, Objective-C and then Swift. And a lot of the, the way that React Native names its components is how iOS thinks about a lot of its components. So that's where those, that's, that's where funny. the, that that's where that structure comes from. See, yeah. I, I, like for me, I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. It just shows you how much of but, the underlying platform I actually end up using, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the whole point. That That's exactly the point. That's why you pick a React Native is because you don't want to have to worry about that stuff, right? You just want to exactly. get something out there that people can use that's well-structured so that you can change it easily that, yeah, makes sense for the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll finally get to my other question that I had. Uh, and that one is these days people don't really write or use React anymore. They use Next.js or they use Remix. They use some meta framework or now the popular term is rendering framework on top of React because they want uh, the server stuff like SSR. They want uh, the deployment they want the routing, you know, most of these frameworks implement file-name-based file routing or file-structure-based routing. Does React Native also come with a meta-framework or does, or does it just use one of the React meta-frameworks? What, what's the meta-framework story for React Native? Jeez, just killing it with the fantastic questions these days, Dan. <laughs> I love all this. This is all awesome. Uh, I need I need to start writing this down, and, and I think I got the subject for the next talk I'm going to be giving. It's just it's just React Native featuring Dan Shapiro. Um, <laughs> yes, if right. you bring me along for the conference just to sit on stage alongside with you, that's good enough for me. <laughs> um, yeah, but Dan's yes, React guess, Native questions are darn questions. <laughs> yeah, I'll ask. Uh, you'll bring me along to your conference talk. I'll just ask questions, and then you'll spend the rest of the time answering them. <laughs> oh, like honestly, those are the those are the best. Those are the best talks. So, like those are the best because yeah. uh, we had a. I, I hosted a um, uh, an, an event earlier earlier this month. Um, the video is going to be out soon. Actually, if you go to the TRPC Guild, um, you'll find it on there. Um, but it was just uh, the creator of TRPC and the creator of a uh, GraphQL client, and I, I just I just sat down and just asked them questions and asked, I got questions from the audience the whole time. So we'll do the same thing, but but with Dan and myself. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess to answer answer actually answer your question and, and not just uh, try to avoid it, uh, try to change the topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you can kind of you can kind of do both. So um, for for next. Uh, as you mentioned, they have their own very particular way of doing um, server-side rendering and 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 routing. Um, so there's a library called Solido that allows you to write in Next and also write a React Native application. So you're kind of writing two navigational structures: one for Next, one for React Native, and then trying to stitch together common components. Interesting. So you, you can you can choose that if you want. For for me, I, I like to 
share more of my code. So I, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that approach. I can see the value, of course. You're, you're leading on the v- values of the next ecosystem. But for me, I, I would like to share more code. So I sat down and I had a chat with um, Evan Bacon from the Expo team. It's actually recorded on YouTube. So if you go to the Guild YouTube channel, check out Evan Bacon on there. You'll find our chat. Um, uh, and, and I kind of spoke to him about exactly this. <laughs> I said, hey, Evan, you know, um, one of the biggest challenges with, with, with React Native right now across every platform is navigation. How do you build a navigator that works across web and mobile? Um, where um, on, on web, we obviously have URL-based routing. On mobile, it's often stack-based routing, where you can also have multiple stacks on the same screen, each with their own individual routing inside of that, um, kind of a different navigational paradigm. How do you consolidate that in building every platform nav- navigators? But I had a chat with him about that React Miami uh, last year. I think that was April. Um, in, I believe it was August or September, off the back of that chat, he came out with a new router called Expo Router. And that is fully set to kind of um, consolidate every platform navigation and um, in my opinion, that serves as the underpinning for kind of a new React Native first, um, uh, essentially framework, React framework. Now, you can also use that same router anywhere else, should, should you desire. Um, but it, the way that I look at it personally is, um, you know, Next, Remix, uh, Redwood, um, you know, any of those kind of lovely React frameworks, they're all built very web first. And in, in my opinion, the main thing that you need to consider when building mobile or, or desktop even is, is the navigational difference where you don't have URLs as kind of your leading navigational paradigm anymore. You have interaction with the UI. And when you have interaction with the UI navigating you from place to place to place, you need to consider navigation slightly differently than kind of just having a more centralized, like serializable URL. Um, so I look forward to seeing what they work on next. Uh, uh, well, sorry, well, essentially what they work on subsequently. <laughs> and so um, they'll, um, uh, and kind of how they, how they make that work into a framework. Yeah, just as an anecdote, I work at a company called Next Insurance, and we also use Next.js. So just think how confusing that gets. But uh, going back to your point, so um, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is that currently you're not really using a meta framework, but you're hoping that Expo effectively introduces sufficient tools that kind of provide the meta framework experience, whether or not it's defined as being an actual meta framework. Correct. Yeah. Like for us at Guild today, um, like I've just written a server-side renderer with that hide with hydrating styles and data and all that fun stuff. Uh, we're using that on Lambda um, right now. Um, that renders our, our our React Native application. It all works fine. Um, so we've built we've built that just in-house. Um, but for someone that desires to use such a framework, I mean, I think the best solution right now is probably Solido, where you can write your next navigation and then separately write a React Native navigation. It's probably the best right now if you want to use something like Next.js. Uh, but yeah, for me personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Expo does because I think that'll be truly the future. That's really interesting because you kind of preempted my my follow-up question, which was going to be about server-side rendering. because you know, with even with all the problems around server-side rendering with React, and we've had several episodes about this, uh, the cost of hydration, why it exists, why it's such a problem, you really need server-side rendering if you want to be 
to have good performance, startup performance on the web, and to be really friendly for SEO. Uh, and and you're kind of like this. I'm not familiar with many companies that actually implemented SSR on their own, because even though React inherently is conductive to that, what with the virtual DOM and whatnot, the reality is that for most developers, it's kind of challenging. And I'm really only familiar with two companies that created their own custom SSR-type implementations, one of them being you, and the other one being Wix, my previous employer, where we effectively implemented an SSR framework because we did it back when there were no SSR frameworks out there. And also, given the scale of Wix, they really needed a custom solution. Um, because it's it's not trivial to do it um, uh, properly and also to keep up with the various advances that are being put out by the React core team, like, you know, server components and streaming and, and whatnot. Um, so first of all, kudos for doing it. And basically what you're saying, though, is that if I'm using React Native and I, for web, because obviously, you know, server-side rendering is wholly irrelevant for native, um, then if, if I do need server-side rendering, I either do it myself or, again, wait for Expo to come up out with some sort of, you know, platform that does it for me, correct? Uh, you could also you could also use Toledo on on Next.js right now, and you, you get all the benefits of using uh, Next.js uh, server side rendering pipeline. I, I think I think that's been largely to your point about the uh, essentially what frameworks like Next.js provide out of the box, um, and all the value that they provide to developers. I think that's been a large reason why Toledo's seen such a rise as well, is because people want to go uh, every platform, um, and and that provides them a great tool to do that. Um, by just leveraging Next.js, uh, you know, server-side rendering capabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, but e- even even that approach, um, they they have a bit of struggle. They have a bit of challenges uh, with Toledo running on Next.js, running a Re- React Native application. For example, um, we spent a lot of time um, server-side rendering into the proper viewport. Um, so if you open uh, beta.gil.host on a mobile app, it will server-side render a mobile app viewport. If you open on a tablet, it'll, a ta- it'll render into a tablet viewport. If you open a desktop, it'll render into a, into a desktop viewport. Um, and that that matters because, you know, you might have different columns, different different pieces of the UI displaying in different mm-hmm. ways, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so server-side rendering into the right viewport, something that we spent a lot of time with in, in, in our build. But for example, Next.js and Solido will not be able to do that. Um, it will default to one viewport and it cannot render into all of them. I'm curious about that because let's say I'm using a phone, but I'm holding it in landscape mode. Um, If, you know, if you're just doing it off of um, user agent sniffing, then you lay it out great, but for portrait mode. So... What do you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're correct. It's it's it's. Uh, I, I so we're using um, uh, CloudFront's uh, client hints to do that, mm. and uh, however however they define what a viewport to render is what we're rendering off. 
So I'm, I, I, I can't recall if there's some, some sort of additional client hint within the user agent to define that for them within CloudFront. Um, but that's basically what we're using. So, um, but you're right. I mean, like even, even, even CloudFront's own documentation says they're not going to be correct 100% of the time. Um, I, think, I think what I'm trying to highlight is that um, we, we at least make an effort while um, uh, unfortunately the next JS into Salido approach is, is just unable to just because um, it's two kind of different layers trying to work together. Um, one is Solito's and one is Next, and they it doesn't have the hooks to work together <laughs> as well. I'm sure something that'll improve in time, but for us, because we built it custom, we were able to kind of to, to be fair, though, I, I'm not sure that it's in the context of the web, not so much in the context of being, trying to be uh, cross-platform across all you know possible uh, devices, both native and web. If you're just looking at web, I'm not sure that it's so much a platform problem as either an ap- application problem or um, or a de- um, design, uh, um, what's the word again? Um, design system problem. Because if you really want to be properly laid out to the uh, uh, whatever endpoint, Rather, in the ideal world of the web, rather than trying to do all sorts of of questions, you know, uh, in, in, imperative questions about uh, a viewport, whether it be on the client and on the server, you just want to use CSS and media queries and basically just, you know, be, what's the term? Responsive or uh, to have a responsive UI. Um I know various cases for you know in React where people literally write code that uh, a JavaScript code that checks you know screen width, screen height, or or window inner width or whatever, and then you know renders the appropriate React code based on whatever response it gets, and that's kind of a terrible thing to do. Um, because it almost by definition you're going to have re-renders, you're going to have a lot of JavaScript running up front, and and the proper solution is just you know use the platform, use the the built-in CSS capabilities. Um, yeah. But you're saying that to an extent, because you kind of need to kind of think about how it will work on native, you kind of need to go beyond that and and do look at viewport related considerations well i i think i think the i think at a very fundamental level 100% of what you said applies still um i i think the main uh, thing thing to add um to 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 what you said is is as long as the data requirements are the same across viewports yeah i mean you could do it with 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 media queries not a problem at all if the data requirements differ across viewports, like for example, you're loading in a whole different column and you're holding, loading in a whole different piece of data or um, something like that be- based on viewport uh, because you have a larger screen size or, or et cetera or different device capability. Um, that's where, uh, you know, hydrating it from a server specifically for that viewport can be advantageous because you're not, um, you know, uh, loading a piece of data 
and then once once the once the client is is bootstraps on, on, like on the front end is then looking for more data that that's more uh, a time to interactive um so it 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 really depends on what you're trying to render and and depends on uh you know the type of experience you're you're building uh, essentially essentially for, for essentially for that device so uh, but at a very high level i mean absolutely agree with you you should do as much with the platform as possible and um that's where i'm really excited about a new uh, a tool called tamagui so i've been working uh uh, you know, kind of back and forth with, with the maintainer, uh, Nate, Nate Weinhardt, uh, from Hawaii, working at Vercel at the moment. Uh, he's working on a new, uh, design system tool for React Native, uh, called Tamagui. And basically, it's, it's, it's three parts. One part of it is, is, is a styling solution. Another part of it is a design system built on top of that. The third part of it is, is a compiler that will compile that design system all the way down to basically straight platform specific code. And so um, the benefits of that are um, for web, for example, it can it can use native media queries on web to do that. So it doesn't have to hit JavaScript. It doesn't have to hit any of that. It can actually just write a CSS media query while you still write platform specific, platform um, agnostic uh, React Native uh, that works everywhere. So um, I'll provide a different example. So for things like viewport, we're we're able to we're able to find a solution for that. Um, and that works for us. Um, not it's not 100, but it works, you know, pretty well. <laughs> um, uh, something like dark mode support. Um, right now, that's incredibly difficult to server side render into dark mode. Um, and so Tamagui, for example, provides a great mechanism to 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 enable that. So you can actually server side render a React Native application into dark mode um, using something like Tamagui because Wait. it will render away, um, compile away into actual platform specific media queries it's, uh okay so the reason that this is the problem is because you're not actually you're not actually using css you can't use css variables or yes yeah, so so traditionally uh, with a react native application um if you're writing in pure react native um so platform agnostic um, yeah, you, you would use uh, the React Native styling system, which would, like, essentially to Dan's point, wait for JavaScript to boot up on the page, then load, um, then detect you're in dark mode, then apply dark mode. So you'd have that flash of, of light mode uh, in, mm-hmm. intermittently. Um, exactly. So if, if you were to deviate from that and write in a little bit of platform-specific code, you, you can get around it. You can write some web-specific code and load in dark mode right off the bat. Uh, but then you need to maintain that code, of course. You need to maintain that little bit of platform-specific code that you have, and you're kind of deviating away from as much code shared as possible. Tamagui allows you to still write in com- complete code sharing everywhere and, and, and will compile that down to platform-specific code as needed. So it still uses media queries, still uses all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you got it right. Um, in, in, a, in a 100% React Native application, yeah, you'd need to wait for JavaScript to do that. So first of all, as a boomer, I'm really loving that Tamagui name. Uh, you know, I assume it's a playoff of Tamaguchi. Uh, uh, but um, what does the syntax of something like that look like? I mean, you're talking about compiling code. So what am I coding in that gets compiled? And I, th- I think that's the beauty of it is um, because Tamagui is, is a design system. Again, you're just writing using those design system uh, primitive, primitives that basically basically Tamagui offers. It, it, it compiles that design system down to straight native code. So, for example, um, before uh, you know, we spoke about a select. Um, so, a, like a select menu, for example, um, 
you know, it would compile that down to a select on web and then use like a select on React Native, for example. So it would compile that down. Um, something like um, like a view um, on React Native, it would use a view component on React Native for iOS and Android and compile that down to be a div um, on web, for example. So it, it, would, it would compile it down to as close as platform specific as physically possible. But I write my source code is something that kind of looks like React, which gets compiled down. You write your source code exactly. You write your source code using the React design system that Tamagui provides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. And then I just run it through Tamagui, which does whatever transformative magic it performs. You know, again, it's it's interesting because, you know, you're looking at so many of these modern frameworks out there, you know, uh, be it Svelte, which we mentioned before, or, or Solid, they're pulling off all of their magic, or quick, I think, they're pulling off all of their, this magic by incorporating uh, a compilation step into their build process to, you know, transform the, the code in weird, wonderful, and wacky ways in order to achieve, you know, you know in the case of quick, it might be to achieve resumability and minimal JavaScript. In the case of of uh, Svelte, it's to compile away all the JavaScript and, you know, library stuff and just download the, the JavaScript that you need. And you're saying that Dam- Tamagui is compiling it in order to, to achieve a, a platform-specific behavior with minimalist overhead. Exactly, yep. Exactly. Yep. And, 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 and gain performance um, as a result. I mean, of course, uh, with, within React, uh, like, the, like the, less you're, the less you're diffing, the less you're rendering, the faster renders you can get. And so it has a lovely side effect of enabling that as well. But yeah, it, ex- exactly. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think that all these tools are using a, c- a compiler to such a degree. While, I mean, yeah, back when, back when I started Toronto.js back in 2010, um, so many people were against a build step getting in your way or against a compilation step. Uh, if you remember <laughs> Well, you know, the whole selling original selling point of JavaScript was that you don't need a compiler. You just F5 to reload and, you know, so make whatever changes you want and just refresh the browser. Uh, but then, you know, we got all these compilers and obviously TypeScript is, is like exactly, the compiler yeah. for our platform these days. Um well, even though you know we're not really using TypeScript as a compiler anymore, there, are, you know, we're what are we using these days for compiling TypeScript? ES, ES uh, Build or Vite or whatever, I forget. Um, you know, <laughs> I just use it. <laughs> I'm not DevOps. Yeah. Um, I, I was hoping to jump in here and and talk a little bit about this, just because, you know, like I said, I've done some React Native. Um, it's been a couple of years since I tried React Native Web. I'm I'm a little curious. Why why did you pick this if you're only compiling to web right now? I mean, are you hoping to just, you know, kind of turn on the iOS and Android com- compilation and, you know, with minimal work? Is that the reason, or is there some other reason why you went this way when you're starting with web? Yeah, I, I think I think that's it's basically that is that we want to just um, at a later date turn on iOS, turn on Android, write the ten percent, fifteen percent code that we require to support those platforms, and bam, now we have a mobile app. 
um, as opposed right. to at a later date, you know, rewriting a whole application, redoing a whole thing, you know. Um, and yeah, like over over COVID in particular, um, uh, you know, uh, like I was I was looking at a lot of design systems and I was like, okay, like how, what do these design systems have to offer, yada, yada, yada. And I, I basically just thought like, hey, if I'm writing this design system anyway, it doesn't matter what's what's what the design system is backed off of. Like, wh- why not just make it React Native and then buy into mm-hmm. all those things? And so, yeah. So it was it was that in a nutshell of um, of, of having that kind of future um, uh, kind of uh, goal of launching a mobile app. I gotcha. I, I guess the other question that I have is, uh, you know, just given my experience with it, were there any gotchas, any hiccups with it? Because it is kind of a bolt on to a system that's meant to build mobile apps. Uh, with React Native in particular, I, I don't think so. I'm just trying to think. Uh, I think the the main stuff was mainly around, uh, as we spoke about navigation, um, and, right. and that was basically it. Um, so so that 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 was kind of a, a key part of the talk I gave last year called React Native Everywhere, um, where you know I've seen Dan a few times uh, d- during that during that journey of giving that talk. React Native Everywhere, literally everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, uh, a big part of that was my journey through navigation w- with React Native. So these days I use um, a React Native URL router, which is based off of React Router. And so there's a lot of commonality mm-hmm. there between those platforms. And so that works pr- pretty flawlessly. But um, the journey to get to that solution was uh, uh, was a big gotcha. Um, not going to lie. It was it was uh, clunky. It was, it was difficult. Um, uh, things like the back and forward buttons in, in a browser caused the whole app to get into a weird state, which caused you to refresh, which caused the URL bar to rewrite itself. Like, so, you know, I have to say where I started with this React Native uh, journey for Guild in particular wasn't wasn't pretty uh, in terms of navigation. Where we are now, however, is dramatically better. Things like React Native URL router, things like Expo router, um, it's just a no-brainer. Um, it just works perfectly fine across every platform. Um, and so that, that's been great. If you don't mind me asking, what are you using for testing? Uh, we are using Playwright. As an end-to-end uh, uh, test system, are you also using anything for unit testing? Uh, so we find the most value in end-to-end using Playwright. Um, uh, like that, that's what the users are going to be using, and that's what we find the most value simply testing. Um, we do more testing on our back end uh, than we do in terms of unit testing our front end. We do more uh, kind of end to end testing on our front end because that's where we find more value. Interesting. I also agree that end to end tests for front end bring the most value. Uh, so obviously, you need to have those. Um, I think that unit tests in addition to end-to-end tests, uh, can have value. Uh, And interestingly, one of the motivations for React's architecture and the way that React is built is that it can support unit tests. Uh, You know, all these components as functions with state-in, UI, virtual DOM-out. You're talking to an old school Rubyist, and so um, don't, don't get me started about <laughs> testing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Charles can relate to that one. <laughs> yes, definitely. TDD, BDD, RSpec. I mean, oh, geez. Um, no, I mean, yeah. Like at, at the end of the day, um, testing it's one of those one of those lovely things where um, my, my testing strategy is is whatever helps you sleep at night. 
You know, if you need to get up in the middle of the night because something's buggy and gone to production, you should figure out your testing strategy because why why are you not sleeping? You know, at night. Um, yeah. But but if if you're comfortable, if you're shipping good code, um, if 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 comfort level's high and you know you're not having issues, um, I mean you're probably fine. You know, you don't want to rack up the CI time. Like I don't want to spend any more money, <laughs> you know, on CI <laughs> than I need to. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to rack up my build times. Um, if, if it works for you, it, it works for you. Um, and so if you can sleep at night. That's probably fine. If if you can't sleep at night, then probably change something. But um, that's kind of the way I look at it. So I'm guessing that uh, between using probably TypeScript and being type safe on the one end and using end-to-end testing on the other hand, you're able to sleep at night. Yes, yes. Uh, something I worked on, I guess, oof, 2014 um, was... Um, embeddable experiences. And so back then I was consulting at a uh, event ticketing company and ended up selling to Ticketmaster. And um, a big part of that was placing that conversion experience where the traffic exists. So if you think of a, a event website, you know, whatever it is, um, and you think of someone else having a conference website, you want to put that events widget on the conference website because everyone's going to the conference website to figure out, you know, how do I get to the conference, yada, yada, yada. Putting that widget on their website, that that's where the traffic exists. That's where you want to convert. You know, it just makes a lot of sense. So um, fast forward over COVID, I was working at another company, consulting at another company. And um, <laughs> this was an entirely different uh, uh, scenario where we had a, a React team and we had a Flutter team. And, uh, you know, Flutter uh, still relatively new compared to React. I mean, obviously, React's been around since, what, 2013 or so. Flutter, much newer than that. Um, uh, the Flutter team was still kind of figuring out how to, how to build the infrastructure, yada, yada, yada. Their team was also just smaller, uh, way more React developers in the market. Um, and so we were able to ship things quite fast with React. So, like, like we we're basically getting ahead of the Flutter team. Um, and so I thought, hmm, what if we could ship our React code as React Native, stitch that into Flutter. Like, is that a way that we can help both teams, you know, by um, simply stitching in our code into that code? And so we prototyped um, a way to actually stitch React Native into Flutter. And so all this got me thinking, okay, can we effectively build an app using React Native and take parts of that experience, package it up, and ship it to any platform that exists. And so, um, long story short, that's also something we're doing with Guild today. And in fact, we're just about to ship our v0.1 of our SDK <laughs> to enable that um, and ship parts of our UI across every platform, whether that be web or, or mobile or desktop or whatever, whatever React Native supports. Um, so you can take, um, let's say, an event ticketing widget, put that on your conference website, put put your um, list of presentations within your conference application, uh, put your speaker profile on your own portfolio site, no, no, you know, to kind of take take parts of our experience and put it wherever wherever the traffic exists and kind of wherever you want to put it. To be blunt, though, is it more than just an iframe container on the web? Um, on the web, we ship both iframes and, and, and an SDK. So it, it really depends on how, how you want to render it. Um, iframes have pros and cons. I remember iframes historically had different resizing contexts on web. So if you zoomed in on the parent 
uh, web page, the iframe didn't zoom in the same amount as an example. So rendering natively um, on the same uh, DOM might be advantageous for that. But like for, for us as uh, the embeddable provider, uh, we just want to provide options for the consumer of that. You know, we, we provide both an iframe and an SDK. So it's up to them how they yeah. want to do it. From, from my experience, one of the main considerations of doing something like this, either as an iframe or not, has to do with which domain you need to be run, you need to or you want to be running in. Because if you're just, you know, you know a, a script tag, that you embed like like a pixel within that website, then yeah, you can do anything. But you're for good or bad, you're running within the security context within the domain of the hosting website, which is something that you may want, but the hosting website may not want. Whereas if you're an iframe, then you know, like you said, there's a lot of associated overhead. But there's also like uh, the the whole separation of domains as enforced by the browser itself. Um, so so yeah, yeah, correct. And, and and as you said, it depends on what you're building. If it's like a data um, aggregator thing, uh, maybe maybe an iframe over post message might be a fine way to isolate and then still pass data in and out. Where that thing living inside that iframe might be able to pass it onwards. If you're building kind of a UI experience, I found oftentimes it could be preferable to put it natively on the same page. For example, if you have a button that opens a modal, you can't really do that inside an iframe. Um, you want to do that on, on the native page so you can actually open a modal that overlays everything else. So, um, for example, a ticketing widget, you might say buy ticket that opens a modal. Um, you might want that to live natively on the same page. Kind of like the uh, chat uh, widgets that people embed on their pages or or maybe like what you might see as a comments widget within a blog or something like that. Yeah, I, I, exactly, I get yeah. what you're saying. And, and effectively like marketing pixels or, or whatnot. So, so, yeah. so basically you're saying that with you, it can go either way. If I've got a website and I want to integrate guild functionality into my website, then I could basically either get a React component from you or maybe just some script that I copy and put into my web page or something like that. Exactly. Yes. Um, you'll you'll be able to download like an npm package at some point in the future, um, as well as yeah, just an SDK script tag you can put into your page and then render via script tag, or you can drop in an iframe and then um, you know just reference our our experience through an iframe, um, and and yeah, that's that's kind of the various methods on the web. I I think the the crazy part for me is is doing it on native as well, <laughs> and so shipping the same experience embedded onto native is kind of is like to me that's just nuts that is so, nuts. um I, I didn't even like like if you asked me in 2019 i would have said you're crazy ask me in 2020 after after we did it <laughs> and, and prototyped react native running inside flutter um you know uh, th- after that i was i was sold it was so seamless a user didn't even know the difference yeah it was, it was i think the well main worked. hurdle there might not actually be a technical hurdle but rather one of uh, playing nice with the requirements of the various uh, stores. Uh, I don't know how they would feel about, you know, one app embedded within another app, and then what are they actually validating when you're being, like, accepted to to their store? So from a, um, uh, like, app 
Apple Store uh, or Google Store perspective, um, it's it's just 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 an application. So it's just an app. At the end of the day, um, there's no um, additional. Uh, kind of consideration that they would have. You, you can still, um, so for example, it, it's like if you ship a React Native application right now um, and you pull in a native Maps widget, you know, uh, to, to, to give you like a Google Maps or an Apple Maps inside your React Native application, it's basically the same the same concern, you know, um, uh, that you would have anyway. So from their perspective, it, it was the same. I, I think um, the way that we looked at it was more, more of an experiential, uh, you know, consideration like like does the end user can they actually tell a difference and i think that's where that's where it was really interesting was they couldn't um we were able to stitch in uh, react native directly into flutter's um uh kind of data flow uh, pipeline um we got two-way directional data flow going in and out it was props going into react and then uh, uh, handlers coming back out into Flutter. It looked literally as if it was any other Flutter component um, in there. And you can do the exact same thing right now with 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 Swift. You can do the exact same thing with Kotlin or Java. Um, it it is legitimately insane the level of native integration that React Native has, because it is fundamentally native with with a JavaScript uh, thread uh, rendering into it. Um, and so it was, you know, mind blowing to me, um, how, how much native integration you can actually create with it. Cool. We, we need to move on to picks uh, and, uh, self promo, but this has been really interesting and it makes me want to go back and start building mobile stuff again. So, uh, yeah, before we do that, if people want to, uh, connect with you online, GitHub, Twitter, wherever else you hang out, where do they find you online? Yeah, you can come check me out at Twitter, uh, Taz Singh on Twitter, or or you can check me out on Guild, uh, beta.guild.host slash Taz. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the self-promos real quick. Um, AJ, what are you working on that people should know about? So two things. One, we added bun to webinstall.dev. And of course, if you're already using the bun installer and bun upgrade, then you know there's a good chance that you just want to do it that way. But you know, if you've been using Webby, for the consistency sake of still using Webby, and then you can switch between versions. You can not just upgrade, but you can also side grade. Um, and it's Postix, the, the Webby installer is Postix compliant, so it'll work in Docker on Alpine and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so we added we added Bun to Webby, and Webby itself is doing really well. So for the first year or two, we didn't do anything to promote it. We just kind of used it for our own goodwill and pleasure. And then we started to uh, put in the output, hey, give a star on GitHub if you like it. And we're closing up on a thousand stars now. So it's been, I think, about a year and a half. It looks like we're going to hit a thousand stars about a year and a half from having something closer to 20 because we just, we, in the beginning, we weren't focused on, oh, let's make this look as popular as it is. Um, so, I think that that Webby is about, I think this year, either this year or next year, Webby's going to hit that hockey stick where it's going to start being more mainstream. I think I, I still encounter a lot of people that I have no idea how they heard about it, but their college professor or their boot camp person or whatever had them using it. And I think that that's going to become much more common. And for those of you that haven't heard me talk about Webby before, it's just the best way to install your development tools. And we have a ton of stuff on there. It's mostly just uh, me and a friend of mine. 
have been putting it together and we we write these little install scripts it's extremely lightweight so when you install something you don't have to download a 500 megabyte package manager you don't have to wait 10 minutes for something to update if you decide you want to get go or you want to get node or you want to get bun or zig or rust or you want to be using caddy it's literally the time it takes it to download it and untar it because it grabs it from the official github repositories it will install it in .local opt and then it will add it to your path so that you are it's it is the most lightweight most secure way to install just about any dev tool modern dev tools at least we don't support things that are old and crufty and insecure that rely on lots of shared libraries and that sort of thing but um, if you're if you're if you've got a daily driver that is not on webinstall.dev i definitely want to hear about it open an issue and we will you know, get it into the pipeline. And the other thing that I was going to mention was, oh, so I'm renaming AJ script, which you've never heard of because I've never mentioned it before to GPT script for the obvious reason. And I am actually... AJ, you are evil. Uh, why am I evil? <laughs> renaming it to GPT script? I mean... <sighs> yeah. I'm renaming it to GPT script. <laughs> That's an evil Well, thing. it makes a lot of sense because it's the, the originally the idea was make a language so simple that people can't get it wrong. But then as I started interacting with Chat GPT, I was like, we need a language that's so simple that AI can't get it wrong. We need to lower the bar. And so there's a couple of things I've changed in the language spec. For example, you can only do one operation per line. This means that you have to use a lot more variables and there are a few situations like multiplying some, you know, if you multiply 24 times 60 times 60 times 1000 to get a full day in milliseconds, now that's five lines rather than one, but you're not allowed to have parentheses for preference operators. I think I will be allowing uh, addition you can do addition together and you can do multiplication together. So you can have multiple additions on one line and multiple multipl multiplications on one line, but you can't do anything that requires the person to know what the order of operations is. So you can't do subtraction or division or mix multiplication and addition together. Wasn't the whole point, um, though, of machine learning that machines will be smart enough to deal with the more higher level concepts <laughs> rather than having us need to dumb down everything? I mean, if you're going to go that route, just have a you know, simple compiler and be done with it. Well, so I, there's also going to be macros that will expand things out. So you could do something in a way that is not valid GPT script that it will just transpile it on the fly. So basically what Prettier does, right? So with Prettier, when you hit save, then it transpiles your code and then provides you correct code rather than crappy code. I think and this so, needs to be an episode, AJ. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's still just a bunch of issues of what part is going to be standard library, what is going to be syntax, what is going to be style, because there's a difference between style and language, right? So I want you to be able to do a bad copy-paste and have code with bad spaces should still work, even though that's bad code, but the style formatter will just format it. And there's some things that if you copy and paste it, it just shouldn't 
run. Anyway, this is a this is a strict subset of the language that runs in browsers that have existed for at least three years. So whatever you want to call that language, this will run in browsers, but it's not far enough along for me to do an episode about it. I, I don't actually have the, the, the tooling, um, but I am committed to it. I've, I've made the decision that I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to find somebody that's done uh, LSP and uh, th- that's done language server protocol work and work with them to do it because I can maximize my efficiency by doing work that I'm already good at and have someone else write an, a language server. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to become real. And if you're interested in it, you can check out the axioms of AJ, which I'll link. All right. Hey, and those Dan. are my picks too, I think. So I'm, I'm going to okay. head out. <laughs> All right, so, Dan, what are yeah, your, what are you working so, on that people should know about? I don't know if people should know about this, but the, it's kind of a funny situation. So, uh, you know, I, I'm working on improving performance and, and, you know, I've talked about this in the past that whenever I do that, the first thing that I do is make sure that everything that needs to be monitored and measured is monitored, is measured and monitored. And for that purpose, you know, uh, the company that I work at next, we already had the system in place for connect, collecting a lot of telemetry data off of the, our, our web, uh, uh, stuff. And what I did is, in addition to this, uh, to our collecting collection system, uh, putting all this stuff into a database, I also uh, added Prometheus to the mix. Uh, you know, um, actually, Prometheus was there before to collect, you know, system level stuff like uh, how much memory is the nodes uh, uh, process using, how much heap, and and and, and stuff like that. So I just added in the capability to uh, monitor some uh, applicative-specific knowledge. And then I showed the rest of the team how to do it. And <laughs> the end result is that all of a sudden, our node server uh, was going, you know, the event loop lag was going up to like two seconds because everybody put in their own histogram with uh, lots and lots of labels and lots of lots of label values. And it turns out that that's not a great thing to do. So first of all, I, I you know, invested effort in cleaning up the, the, the mess that was put into there and, and removing a lot of duplicate uh, metrics and uh, removing a lot of unneeded labels and co- uh, coalescing label values and stuff like that. Probably seems like something that's worth an episode. And and now I'm thinking about what can I do to enforce a set of rules besides just, you know, telling people what not to do. But how can I, you know, automatically enforce a set of rules so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again? Uh, I'm not sure if it's if it's doable or not, because, you know, at the end of the day, developers have the keys to the kingdom. If they want to, they just can allocate a ton of memory. And, you know, I can't block that. Um, so, so yeah, so I've been dealing with, with, uh, node performance issues due to excessive <laughs> usage of Prometheus, uh, for the past couple of days, which has been interesting to say the least. Cool. Um, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to throw it out again. I got a little bit derailed. Um, but, uh, I have been, um, 
doing the I totally uh, my brain isn't working this morning. Um the new podcast, the Catapult Your Coding Career podcast. Um and so if you're looking for ideas on how to get unstuck, you know, maybe you're working a job you're not happy in, maybe you're uh, feel like you're you should be making more. Maybe you're not sure how to get from junior to mid or mid to senior or senior to architect or architect to thought leader or I call them trailblazers, right? The people are kind of finding their way forward through interesting problems and, and technologies. Um, you know, any of those things, I, I talk my way through them, you know, and how to, what I did basically to, to get past all of those different obstacles, because I basically invented my way through a lot of them. And there are a lot of things that people can do that are kind of outside of the normal thinking that open doors for you and give you opportunities to go out and and do really interesting things and and enjoy your career while you build a life. I mean, I have five kids. Um, you know, I I go to church and I, I participate in all kinds of things for church. Uh, I'm pretty involved in the political community here in Utah. Um, you know, and so I have all these other things going on that that my career supports and gives me opportunities to do, but that doesn't mean that I'm just working the highest paying job possible that I hate in order to do it. And so, you know, that that's what I want to help you build. So uh, come check it out, catapult your coding career. And then the other thing I'm going to put out there is um, you should be able to go to topendevs.com and find a, a form to get on our mailing list. Um, I'm going to start writing daily emails and it's going to have a lot of those same kinds of thoughts. Um, maybe things that I, I can't express as well on YouTube or in a podcast that maybe I can write out or tell more stories or you'll get, you'll get different content than you'll get on the podcast. But I really want to give people those, those things to, to go by and give you opportunities to enhance your learning. And so, um, anyway, those are the two things that I'm, I'm recommending that you do. Um, I'm also adding lists for each of the shows. So if you go to javascriptjabber.com and you fill your email in there, you'll get the emails I just talked about and you'll get an email whenever we release an episode. So yeah, that that's kind of the deal there. And then we're getting ready to put together our TikTok account. So working on that too. Taz, what are you working on that people should know about? Yeah, I mean, uh, these days, definitely Guild. I would say that's my core focus right now, uh, scaling it upwards and onwards. So, um, yeah, keep, keep an eye on that. Um, other than that, I'm really looking forward this year to head off to uh, Portland to speak at uh, Chain React Conf over there. So, uh, uh, oh, TBD, nice. what I'll be speaking on. Um, might be Tamagui, might be Embeddable React Native. Um, but, yeah, uh, hopefully mm -hmm. check you out over there. And um, a few other conferences this year as well that I'm not yet ready to announce, but... Um, Hopefully, I'll see a few of you there. Nice. I've been to Chain React Comp twice. It's it's a fun time. So say say hi to those guys for me. All right, well, let's do picks here real quick. AJ, did you say you were good on picks? So I decided that I'm going to add one more, which is okay. that snowflakes are real, and I have pictures to prove it. They are not okay. just something that roll on the credits of movies and that you cut out on paper in, in, in kindergarten, they actually exist. You can see them with your eye. And I never knew this until today because I had literally never seen a snowflake before. I had never gone outside and actually looked at the snow when the, cause apparently it's to do with temperature and humidity. So snowflakes, the way that we 
imagine them the way that we popularize them only form during at a specific temperature range with specific humidity there's specific parameters and i have never happened to look at the snow on a day when those specific parameters have existed i saw snowflakes for the first time and they're freaking awesome awesome all right um dan what are your picks Okay, so my first pick is an amusing tweet by uh, Sebastian Ramirez, who wrote as follows. Uh, I saw a job post the other day. It required four plus years of experience in fast API. I couldn't apply as I only have one and a half years of experience because then that's when I created fast API. Um, so yeah, the guy <laughs> couldn't apply for a job in the API in the thing that he created because he doesn't have enough experience in it. I found that that's when you lie. <laughs> that's when you do what you need to do to get to the interview. I love those and then clear it up. Yeah, it sounds like he needs the the, the, the career catapult podcast that Charles was talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, catapult your career, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that would be my first pick. Uh, my second pick is the fact that um, TypeScript 5 Beta was recently released, and uh, a great person who we, we've had on this on this show, um, uh, Matt Pocock, actually put out a great video, short video, only like something like six minutes, uh, explaining the highlights of of this new release. Uh, so I'm going to link to that. Uh, it it really got me up to speed really quickly about what to look for in this upcoming version of TypeScript. Um, so that would be my second pick. And uh, my third pick is a video that was released by uh, Jack uh, Harrington about React streaming in depth. It's a great video mm -hmm. because he shows how uh, this new capability in React works First, he demos it in Next.js using server components. Then he demos it in Remix without using server components. And finally, he just kind of builds it on top of React itself without any meta framework, which really kind of explains what's going on on the inside. And, you know, given the way that I like to understand things, this was really a great video for me. So thank you, Jack, and I'll link to that uh, video as well. And my final pick is the pick that I almost always pick. I actually did not pick it last week, which just goes to show. And, and that's the ongoing war in Ukraine because it's become mundane. It's been going on and on and on. We're all kind of desensitized to it. We're used to it, but it's still going on. It's still pretty terrible. Uh, and, you know, so as usual, I'm going to say that whatever you can do for the people in Ukraine, please do so. And those would be my picks for today. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump in with a few. I always do a board game pick first. Uh, the game I'm going to pick this time is Sushi Go Party. Um, now, if you've played Sushi Go, Sushi Go Party plays up to eight players. Um, it's similar, but it's not quite the same. Yeah, effectively, what you do is you deal the cards um, and then you choose a card to keep out of your hand. You place it face down. You pass the cards to the left. 
and then you reveal your card and i think you do the left the right i, I can't remember but i think you change the rotation direction periodically um or, or anyway um but yeah effectively yeah that's what you do so then you do the same thing until all the cards are gone and then you tally up your score right and so usually what happens is you have different things that stack for different values right some of the cards are just worth whatever number of points on their own some of them you get bonus points for having the most or the least or you don't get any points if you didn't have the most or um you know for every three of them you get 10 points or stuff like that so anyway it's it's pretty fun um it's all sushi based um but it's a lot of fun it's probably a half hour long game uh board game geek ranks it at 1.0 or 1.30 weight so it's it's very easy for people to pick up um and it's a lot of fun so i'm going to pick that um and then um a few other things that i'm going to throw out there um i know this is probably not of interest to too many people but um I started doing the the triathlon training, the Ironman training, and uh, I figured out that I had to eat more if I was going to work out more. Um, I figured that out the hard way because I just crashed and burned last week. Uh, and so um, I, I've been a big fan of the keto diet. I feel better when I'm on it. I'm diabetic, so not eating as many carbs is a good idea for me. And so um, I, I was looking for, okay, how do I do the Ironman on keto, right? Because most of the eating plans, you're eating like 65, 70% carbohydrates. And uh, I found a, an Ironman guide to ketosis. It's a little bit in depth, but I dig it. And uh, so anyway, so um, I'm just going to keep track of that. The other thing that I'm adding now to my training regimen is um, my fitness pal. And so the thing that is nice is you can connect your Garmin uh, workout tracker to my fitness pal. And then my fitness pal will tell you, um, how many more calories you can eat per day above your, you know, regular diet. So if I don't work out on a day, right, then I don't get extra calories. And so I just know how many I should eat, um, to kind of keep to maintain. And then for the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the approach. Um, the other thing is, is that um, I, I figured that I do need to eat some carbohydrates because I cut them completely out. And that helps you get into ketosis, but I need to start adding back in. So that's the other deal that I'm doing. But yeah, so uh, really digging that. Um, that kind of I reminds also... me, Chuck, that during the Olympics, it turned out that Michael Phelps was uh, eating something like 10,000 calories a day. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, I kind of ran across that again because I'd heard that too. And yeah, when you're working out a lot, you have to eat more, a lot more. And so that's that's what I'm getting back on top of now is just, you know, adding fuel to the thing so I don't crash and burn because I felt awful for like three days. So anyway, um, what else was I going to pick? I guess that's all I got. Oh, I, I also, uh, I don't know if I picked this last time. But I watched 1923, uh, the first four episodes, which is what's out. Uh, it's the spinoff of Yellowstone, and I really liked it. It was it was really good. So I'm going to pick that, too. All right, Taz, what are your picks? 
Uh, geez. Uh, well, I think I think first of all, ketosis. Geez, I so I tried that. I'm I'm vegetarian. Been vegetarian my whole life, uh-huh. and that was very difficult for me <laughs> because as a vegetarian, uh, oh, not bet. eating carbs is uh very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I, uh, I I crash and burnt myself on the on on a keto diet, but um, so you just fast. Yeah, you can That's make it work. Diet. Um, it's like the like the like the advantages look amazing. Uh, I said you just my you, pick... you just fast. Your diet is just fasting, <laughs> not eating. That's it's just it. not eating. Yeah, <laughs> not Wa- eating. water and vegetables, <laughs> water and ice cubes. <laughs> Whoa! Now you're adding ice cubes. You, 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 you don't know what they're putting into those things. Um, but yeah, I was with a, a triathlete down in Australia with with Dan actually. So um, just came off a dive trip uh, and uh, met up with Dan Dan down in, down in Australia down in, down in Cairns. And um, I don't know if you remember Dan, like someone at that at that table was a triathlete. So they went down to um, Australia, down to uh, Perth, so on, on the west west coast mm-hmm. of Australia, um, and did a, did a triathlon there. So um, yeah, it's a lot of training. I can relate to that. So you have to eat as much as four people, aka ten thousand calories a day, in order to uh, in order to get. I to don't know. Food. I have to eat um, that much. I'm assuming yeah, that I'm probably going to eat quite a bit more. But yeah. <laughs> I think my pick would be um, uh, quite simple. It'd be a bit uh, maybe uh, a Pokemon in that, um, uh, I, like I would choose, I would pick Dan Shapir um, to come on stage with me next time and uh, ask me questions. I'll take and you up so on I think, that. I think that would be my pick. <laughs> uh, now, now you've now yeah, I'm going to uh, you know fix my schedule. So you know, just let me know where and where and when. <laughs> yeah, well, last year I saw you in two continents. I saw you in Europe and I saw you in Australia. This time we got to make it three. So yeah, we'll, for we'll try sure. To make it happen. I, yeah, for sure. I'd love to. Um, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. We're already way over time. But thanks for coming, Taz. It was awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And, and uh, look, pleasure to seeing all of you again in the future. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right, folks. Till next time. Max out. Bye.